0: Luke 3 and 4. I'm calling the series, The Story Fulfilled, as we're continuing the story that we began in the, uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, we're finding as we walk through the Gospel of Luke that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises, the prophecies, the hopes and dreams of, of all the Old Testament and, and really of every man, woman and child who's ever lived or who ever will. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We ask that you would open our eyes to your word, open our hearts to your word, open our ears to your word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Um, I don't know if this ever happens to you, but every now and then I'll be driving somewhere, and and I'm driving along, and suddenly I'll realize, and I, I I just saw Jeff, and I'm like, uh oh, Kyle's back. Some law enforcement in the room. I know a guy that every now and then he's driving, <laughs> and uh, no, and uh, and, and I'll just kind of. Look up and say, "Where am I? How did I get here? And and where am I going? I don't know if that if that uh, if that does that ever happen to you? Kind of raise your hand, uh, Ray Cornut. If you just gather up the licenses of everybody that, um, no, I think that happens. You know wait, wait a minute. Where am I? Where am I going? How do I get there? What am I doing? Where have I come from? And, and really, that's a, a metaphor for the human condition. I mean, that's just really humanity as a whole, and that's every single one of us. Uh, where have we come from, and where are we going? Um, in, in, in Genesis chapter 16, verse 8, Hagar has, has run away from uh, uh, an abusive relationship in the home of Abram and Sarah, and, and she's on the run, and, and, and God meets her, and God asks her that question, where have you come from and where are you going? And there's multiple layers. If God asks you that question, or if anybody asks you that question, there's multiple layers of that. Um, You might say, well, I'm coming from Abilene and I'm heading to Sweetwater. But the deeper layer of that would be to, to say, you know, what is driving my life? What is the driving force of my life? What's the ultimate Foundation of my life, and what's the ultimate destination of my life? Where have I come from? What's the ultimate foundation of my life? Where am I going? What's the ultimate destination of my life? And something you're going to hear probably 10 times in the next 30 minutes is that Jesus' life is characterized by one ultimate foundation and one ultimate destination. Jesus' life is characterized by one ultimate foundation and one ultimate destination. So in this passage, we're going to catch a glimpse of Jesus' one ultimate foundation and Jesus' one ultimate destination. And we're going to see how the Father affirms and reinforces that and how the evil one attempts to derail and seduce and twist that ultimate foundation and ultimate destination in Jesus' life. So where are you coming from? Where are you going? What's your ultimate foundation? What's your ultimate destination. So in, in, in Luke 3, 21 and 22, we're going to see Jesus baptized and we're going to see the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus and this incredible word of affirmation spoken to Jesus from the Father. Luke three twenty one. now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. With you, I find deep delight. With you, um, I find joy. I'm pleased with you. Um, So why does Jesus get baptized by John the Baptist? Um, In Matthew, he says, I'm doing this to fulfill all righteousness, Um, But what does that mean? Why does Jesus get baptized by John the Baptist? Remember, John the Baptist's baptism is one of repentance. And Jesus has nothing to repent of. He's sinless, uh, never sinned, never failed, never falls, never falters. He's faithful from the beginning to end, from all eternity, okay? Um, So he has nothing to to repent of. Why is he getting baptized? I think a couple of reasons. Um, One, Jesus is baptized because he's humble. There's this deep humility that just characterizes the entire incarnation of Jesus. It's in humility that Jesus identifies with us in coming, uh, becoming a child, becoming an infant, becoming an embryo before that, and, and becoming one of us. I mean, isn't that amazing that, that, that Jesus becomes one of us? And, and humility characterizes His entire incarnation. Uh, and, and He identifies with sinners Through his incarnation, he identifies with sinners through his death on the cross. All the way through his life and death, Jesus identifies with us. And so in baptism, Jesus is identifying with us. He's not a sinner himself, but he's getting baptized because he is identifying with the people he's come to save. And he identifies with us throughout his ministry. There's something representative about Jesus getting baptized. There's something representative. Jesus commands his disciples, follow me, and he commands us, follow me, and he leads us. But following Jesus is more than just following a great example. He is our example, but he's more than an example. He's a representative. So let's think about David and Goliath. Um, David didn't say to the Israelites, hey, Follow my example and go kill Goliath. Uh, David actually wins this representative victory. David defeats Goliath and all the Israelites cheer. Why did they cheer? They didn't do anything, they just watched it happen, right? Why do they cheer when David defeats Goliath? They cheer because David's victory is their victory, David's win is is their win. David defeated Goliath, therefore therefore we all defeat Goliath. And and so Jesus, throughout his life, throughout his ministry, his life, his death, his resurrection, is representative. He represents us. And even in his baptism, he crosses the waters of baptism as a representative of us. There's a lot to think about there. And and, and this is also, Jesus is baptized because there's a a beginning happening here. Now, some people read this passage and and draw some false conclusions. Some people read this passage, passage, they read about him being baptized, they read about the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus, they read about the Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And some people subscribe to this heresy called adoptionism, and that says that Jesus becomes the Son of God at this moment. But the the New Testament teaches that Jesus doesn't become the Son of God at this moment. He has always been the Son of God. He has been the Son of God for all eternity. So, So there's a beginning here, but it's not the beginning of him being the Son of God. It's not the beginning of him being the Messiah, he's always been, always will be the Messiah, but is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And he's baptized in the Jordan River. Why the Jordan River? Remember, that's where the people of Israel crossed when they went from the wandering in the wilderness to crossing into the promised land. And now here Jesus is going to the Jordan. He's being baptized in the Jordan. And what he's saying through this is God's plan, just like God's plan moved forward when Israel crossed the Jordan into the promised land, now God's plan and and God's purposes for God's people are moving forward again as Jesus crosses through those waters of the Jordan. He's moving us into a new stage of redemption history into a new covenant. There's these two incredible events that accompany Jesus baptism. First, the Holy Spirit descends on him in bodily form. Now, this isn't the first time Jesus enters into a relationship with the Holy Spirit. He's been in relationship with the Holy Spirit for all eternity, but something special and significant happens here because Jesus public ministry is beginning and the Holy Spirit descends upon him. And, 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 and in Luke chapter 4, uh, Jesus is going to say, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has uh, anointed me to proclaim the gospel. He, he's saying, I am the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. We're told that the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus in bodily form. So there's something tangible about the way the spirit of God descends on Jesus. There's something bodily and tangible and and solid about the way the spirit of God descends on Jesus. There's no mistaking that that's what's happened. There's no missing it. But we're told the Spirit descends bodily on, the, on Jesus like a dove, and that's where a lot of us get tripped up. We see in pictures of Jesus, he's walking around like with a dove on his shoulder. And, you know, like in life group, I, I sit with a, a, you know, we have a cockatiel, and, and I'll sit with a our, our bird on my shoulder or something. But Jesus is not a pirate walking around with a bird on his shoulder this is a simile, if we remember from English class. Simile is, is when we use the words like or as. The Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. Uh, it's not a literal dove on Jesus' shoulder. That would have been cool and all, but that's just not what Luke is saying. But he's saying something about the way the Spirit descends on him, something about the peace and the gentleness of the way the Spirit of God uh, descends on Jesus. It was like a dove. So something uh, amazing happens there. The Spirit descends on Jesus, saying that his messianic ministry is inaugurated but then God's voice speaks. And who's God speaking to in verse 22? You. He's speaking to Jesus. He's speaking directly to Jesus. He speaks this word of just deep affirmation and deep blessing to Jesus. You're my son. You're my beloved son. And you, I'm well pleased. I'm so proud of you. I'm so pleased with you. And You know, I think about, I think about my relationship with my son and how when I put him to bed at night, I say, I'm so, I'm so glad I'm your dad. And he says, I'm so glad I'm your son. I'll say, I'm so glad you're my dad. And I think about my relationship later in later years with my own father. And I think about how, how sin is going to hinder the relationship that I have with my son. And how one day affirmation is going to be hard with him where it's easy now. It's going to become hard and it's going to become difficult. Um, and I think every man and every woman and every child in this room can identify with just that hunger in your soul, that hunger in your heart for that word of affirmation, that word from the Father that says, You're mine. And I'm so proud of you. I, I love you. I find joy in you. And, and so we think about Jesus and we say, well, does Jesus need to hear this from his Father? Now, that's a question that's probably way above my pay grade but I'm going to try to take a stab at it we know that Jesus is divine fully divine and fully human and so in Jesus divinity does he need to hear this word of affirmation the way probably not the way we think about need okay in his divinity but what we're getting is we're getting a glimpse we're getting an inside look at how the trinity operates within itself if you, if in, in, in John chapter 16, verse 14, Jesus is speaking of the Spirit of God who's going to descend on disciples, and he says, The Spirit of God will glorify me. Talking about Jesus. And then in John 17, 1, Jesus is praying to his Father. He says, Father, glorify the Son so that the Son may glorify you. Just in those two verses, there's a lot of glorifying going on. The Son glorifies the Father. The Father glorifies the Son. The Spirit glorifies the uh, the Son. God within himself, the relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit is this eternal relationship of Father blessing the Son and Son blessing the Father and Spirit blessing the Father and the Son. God within Himself, the, the, the community of the Trinity, God, the Godhead within Himself, there is this self-giving, other-centered, affirming, honoring, glorifying of God within God. God the Father exalts the Son. The Son exalts the Father. The the Spirit exalts the Father and the Son. That's how God relates within Himself. And when you get saved, when you come to Christ, you're invited into, you're brought into the very life of God. And so when the New Testament talks to us about the one and others of Scripture when the New Testament tells us to like outdo one another in showing honor, when the New Testament says to bless each other, when the New Testament says that we're known by our love for each other, these aren't just random commands that we're being given. We're being told that as the body of Christ, as believers, we model to the world what the Trinity itself is like. That's I mean, this is just amazing to me. This is, this is mind-blowing that God within Himself is this community of affirming, self-giving, honoring love. And we're brought into that. And so in Jesus' divinity, does he need it? Probably not. But that's just how God relates to God from all eternity. Now, Jesus in his humanity, does he need to hear this word of affirmation? I'd say yes. The human Jesus, the, Jesus in his humanity needs to hear this word of affirmation. The relationship between Jesus and His Father is one of mutual glorification, mutual serving, mutual honoring, mutual affirming. I delight in you. I find deep joy in you. I'm so glad you're my Father. I'm so glad you're my Son. And think about your closest relationships. Think about your spouse if you got one. Think about your... Children, if you got some, think about your parents if you got them. Think about your friends if you got them. Think about your coworkers. Think about the people in your life that you're in deep relationship with. Are those relationships characterized by affirmation, or are those relationships characterized by criticism? Um, I struggle with this. I struggle in this area. I've often Um, I've often celebrated the fact that I'm a prophet, not in a sense that I predict the future, but in the sense that I say the hard thing. But I'm learning that sometimes saying the hard thing is to say that word of affirmation, that word of acceptance, that word of finding the gold in somebody rather than pointing out the dirt. Um, Godly affirmation is not saying nice things to people. Godly affirmation is honoring God at work in another person. So when I see God at work in you, and I speak to that, I'm affirming I see God at work in you. I'm not just saying nice things to you. Oh, I like your. Sweet. I'm saying, man, when you, man, when you held the door open for that person, when you greeted that person, when you, when you took initiative here, when you, uh, you know, even even though you failed here. In the midst of that, I see, when we see God at work in somebody and honor that and speak to it, that's godly affirmation. And if you constantly find yourself struggling to affirm others, constantly finding fault in others, constantly policing others, finding the dirt rather than the gold, if you struggle to affirm, could it be that you cannot offer affirmation to others because you're not looking to God to find the affirmation that you desperately need. And, 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 and this is an area of struggle for me. I, I often feel that my job is to, you know, straighten other people out, you know? Um, and there's something glorious about my willingness to say the hard thing. But again, sometimes the hard thing is I see God at work in you right now. Um. And I have lived with this picture of God that so often I view Him as critiquing constantly, criticizing constantly, and it's not who God is. Jesus' ultimate foundation is that He's beloved of the Father. He is loved by His Father. Brennan Manning in his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, writes, My deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ and I have done nothing to earn it or deserve it. Man, how would that transform all of our relationships? If that's, the, if that's my deepest awareness of myself, is that I am loved by Jesus Christ and I've done nothing to earn it or deserve it. What we're glimpsing in this moment between Jesus and His Father is the foundation. It's the ultimate foundation of Jesus' life. His Father is pleased. My Father is pleased with me. And the ultimate destination of Jesus' life is to bring glory and honor to His Father. If you or I have a critical spirit of others in our lives, that says a lot more about our relationship with God than it does about the other people in our lives. My critical spirit says more about my walk with God than it does about... Other people. And some of us, I, I know how my mind works. Well, I would affirm people more if they would just... No, hold on. That's not what we're talking about. And again, we're not talking about just saying nice things. We're talking about, do you see in your wife and your husband and your child and your parent and your coworker? do you see God at work? And if you're telling me that there is no area in that person's life where God is working, we need to talk about God and your view of God. My critical spirit says more about my relationship with God than it does about any person in my life. So just think about how would this awareness change my life? If I'm deeply aware, my deepest awareness that I'm loved by God and I don't deserve it and I can't earn it, how would that transform your relationships? So Jesus' life is characterized throughout his life and his death, his, his ministry. There's this char- He's characterized by this one ultimate foundation. I'm loved by God. And this one ultimate destination, I am going to honor and glorify God with my life. And we're going to see that tested in Luke chapter 4. Chapter 4. In Jesus, verse 1, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, And was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. So Jesus is led by the Spirit, full of the Spirit, into the wilderness where he's going to be tempted. Now, we we probably know or have heard that that word tempted can be translated tested or tried or tempted. God does not tempt us. But God does test us. And when God tests us, he's developing gold in us. When the evil one tempts us, he is seeking to derail our ultimate foundation and derail our ultimate um, destination. And so, and so it may look like, as we read this, Satan, it may look like Satan is holding the cards, like he's why don't you turn the stones to bread, Jesus? And hey, why don't you just jump up on the top of the temple and throw yourself down and land like Superman? Or hey, why don't you, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. It may look like Satan is holding the cards. It may look like evil is holding the cards. And in your life situation, it may look like evil and the evil one is holding all the cards. But the reality is that Satan is terrified of Jesus. He is terrified. That's why he's trying so hard to derail Jesus. He's terrified of Jesus. Satan is working so hard to derail your life from being being founded on the beloved status that you have in Christ and the purpose you have in life of honoring and glorifying God, he's trying so hard to derail that because he's terrified of Christ and he's terrified of a life with Christ at the center of it. Satan isn't holding the card. He's terrified. He's afraid. And, And Jesus is going to be tempted in the area of his ultimate foundation. God has just said, you're my beloved son. And what does Satan come along and say? If you are really the son of God. Just like in the Garden of Eden, did God really say this? He targets that ultimate destination and that ultimate foundation. But Jesus' clarity on His ultimate foundation and His ultimate destination, he, because of His clarity, he, he, He's carried through temptation. Something that makes Jesus different than... There's a lot of things that make Jesus different than us... But as, as I look at Jesus, and I look at how is this affirmation from the Father, how is that connected to His temptation? And obviously, the evil one is attacking that affirmation from the Father. But on a positive side, how is His affirmation from the Father connected to Him uh, walking through this temptations? I see Jesus here, and I see Him living from acceptance. He is living from a position of I am beloved of my Father. The deepest, truest thing about me is my Father loves me. Living from acceptance looks very different than living for acceptance, doesn't it? And if I'm living for acceptance, wow. If I'm living from acceptance, I'm living from this rootedness that God in Christ accepts and loves me and I'm His beloved. If I'm living from that, then man, when you affirm me, when you pat me on the back, that's great, that's wonderful. I love it when my spouse pats me on the back and affirms me. Beautiful, and I enjoy it, and it's good, and I'm thankful for it. But if I'm living for acceptance, no matter how often you affirm me, no matter how often my wife affirms me, no matter how often you pat me on the back, it's never enough, is it? if i'm living for acceptance i'm i'm constantly seeking affirmation from everywhere and never satisfied and and what most of our hang ups ends up being is we look to a human being to give us the affirmation that only God can give us. And when I look to that other person to give me, whether it's my child or my parent or my spouse or my friend or whoever, when I'm looking to a human to give me the acceptance that only God can give me, I'm setting that relationship up for failure and for resentment. But if I'm finding and rooting that acceptance and that affirmation in in, in my, in my walk with God, then man, I love it when you accept me and when you affirm me. And I'm going to be okay when you don't. Where is my foundation? Am I living from acceptance? Or am I living for acceptance? We can even live for acceptance from God. Oh, if I just do this one more Bible study, if I just do this one more thing, then I'm going to be okay with Him. He's going to be on my side. Jesus enters and endures this testing and temptation because He's grounded in His ultimate foundation. I'm loved by my Father. And he's grounded in his ultimate destination and vocation. I'm I'm here to glorify my Father. He lives from acceptance, not for acceptance. Um, Moving forward. Um, Jesus is the second Adam. And as Jesus is here in the wilderness being tempted, we see a difference between Jesus and Adam. Adam fails. Adam's in the best possible circumstance. And Adam failed. Jesus is in When we say being in the desert, 40 days fasting with the devil himself in your face, that's a pretty tough situation, right? In the worst situation, Jesus is faithful. He is faithful in the toughest. He's the second Adam. He's the true Israelite. His 40 days in the wilderness mirrors or parallels the 40 years that Israel wandered in the wilderness and where Israel grumbles and complains and, and forgets, and they get derailed from their foundation, they get derailed from their destination, Jesus is faithful. So let's look at what those temptations are that the enemy threw at Jesus. And there's different lenses we can view these through, but, uh, but we're going to use one lens here. Verse 3, The devil said to Jesus, if you, are the, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Now, probably nothing evil or wicked about bread. And Jesus' time of fasting was over. The 40 days was over. So what's the big deal with turning stones into bread? I mean, let's face it, if you could turn a rock into a roll, I mean, it would happen, probably. Um, and, 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 but, but what possibly is the underlying temptation here is that Jesus is tempted that rather than... His identity be rooted in... His ultimate foundation be His belovedness from His Father and His ultimate destination being bring glory and honor to His Father. He's being tempted to make His ultimate concern comfort. I'm hungry. I'm the Messiah. What's to keep me from just making a serving myself? I mean, I'm coming to take on the sin of the world. I mean, that's how I'd rationalize it. I mean, I'm going to bear the sin of the world. I can, turn, I can make some bread. I mean, that's not going to hurt anybody. Right? And, and we live amongst the most spoiled generation that's ever lived. And it's very easy for us to miss how comfort has become an idol. God would never ask me to do something that's uncomfortable. I mean, God would never ask me to, to, to feel pain, and God would never ask me, to, wait, is my ultimate foundation that I'm beloved, and I'm going to honor God, or is my ultimate foundation comfort? Verse 5. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give this, all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Um, The next temptation, or one of the ways we can view this next temptation, is Jesus is tempted towards control. Hey, let's bypass the cross. Let's bypass the need for this whole grace through faith stuff from people. And how about you just bow your knee to me, and I'll give you everything, and you'll have control and authority over everybody. All war will end. Justice will will cover the globe. It's just going to cost your obedience to the Father. It's just going to cost... The cross and resurrection. Jesus is tempted with this control thing. Now, there is areas in life where we have to exercise a little bit of control. It's kind of like bread, um, but kind of like bread, a little bit goes a long way, right? And so, there are areas of our life where we have to exercise authority and control. But has control in my life has control in my life become? I've got my amen corner. She's doing good. She's fine. She's fine. I, uh, has control in your life? become the ultimate concern, the ultimate foundation, the ultimate destination. And then let's look at verse 9. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. It is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. Even the devil quotes scripture. And on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus responds, it is said, you will not put the Lord your God to the test. And then the devil departs from him and waits for an opportune time. Uh, what, what, one way we can look at this last temptation is the temptation of celebrity. Um, comfort, control, celebrity. And, and we may say, well, I don't want to be a celebrity. This one doesn't apply to me. Hold on. We, we, what about substitute the word status? What about recognition? We live in an age where everybody, every, what, what are the most popular TV shows? It's all about the next top this or the, 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 the voice or America. You know, it, it's, it's all about everyday people suddenly becoming celebrities where everybody's chanting our name because deep down, isn't that kind of what we're all drawn to? Um, how is status or celebrity or being noticed or being affirmed by others How does that at times take center stage in my life? And Jesus responds to each of these temptations. And remember, these are temptations to be derailed from His ultimate foundation and His ultimate destination. He's not seduced by comfort. He's not seduced by control. He's not seduced by celebrity because He's not living for acceptance, but He's living from it. I'm beloved by my Father, and I will glorify my Father. Jesus responds not by arguing with the devil, Notice that a lot of times when we're arguing with sin, it's really just our way of toying with it until we can talk ourselves into it. He responds to, I mean, I'd never do that. I mean, yeah, but I mean, maybe. I mean, if I just a little bit did that, it would be okay. You know, he doesn't argue. He doesn't make this big conversation. He responds like Adam should have in the garden. He responds like Israel should have in the wilderness. He responds like I should have every day of my life. But he responds faithfully. And he represents me and you faithfully. He responds with God's word. And you know what? I'm so twisted by sin, and I suspect that you are too, that even my relationship with God's word has gotten warped. And I'm tempted, and maybe you're tempted, to look at God's word as a tool to use to get God to accept you. If I just, I mean, I, ought to, I know I, I'd rather be watching, you know american ninja warrior but i'm a christian so i guess i'm going to read the scripture and feel really lousy about it you know um because that's the kind of joyful christian i am i mean you hear the and god you know and i'm putting in my time with the scripture and god's really going to be on my side now something along those lines is is kind of how we approach the word Rather than, man, can you believe that God would save a wretch like me? Can you believe that I, I, I'm just amazed that God would put on flesh and live a perfect life and die a sinless death and, and overcome death by resurrection and he wants to talk to me? I am gonna. mean, I can't wait to dive into what he has to say. Totally different approach to the Word of God. And Jesus, because he's rooted in his belovedness, because he's rooted in his destination to honor God, man, the word is in him. That's how we're going to overcome temptation is the word being in us. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, written in 1647, some of our, uh, uh, some of our uh, middle schoolers may remember this from our time together a couple years ago on Wednesday nights. Uh, what is the the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism? What is the chief end of man? Remember? The chief end of man. I see the wheels turning. There's a squirrel throwing acorns around. To glorify God. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You exist to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So how do you overcome temptation? How do you endure testing? We do so by remembering our foundation. In Christ, the Father is pleased with me. In Christ, there's nothing deeper about me than I am loved by my Father. I'm beloved of God. There's nothing I could do to earn that or deserve that. Therefore, there's nothing I can do to, to lose that. Remember, my destination, I was made to glorify God, to honor God, to bring joy to him, to joy him forever. So are you living? We're wrapping up. The band's coming up. Are you living for acceptance? maybe even for the acceptance of God? Or are you living from that place of God's incredible, astonishing, amazing acceptance of you in Christ? Jesus' life is characterized by one ultimate foundation, one ultimate destination. And the Apostle Paul, his life, even though Paul is a sinner, even though Paul is is a mere human, on a totally different level than Jesus' Paul's life was characterized by that same ultimate foundation, that same ultimate destination. And you know what, Satan, I'm wrapping up, you know what Satan is afraid of? You know what makes hell tremble in fear? You want to make hell tremble in fear? What makes hell tremble in fear is when a life is captivated by Jesus So much that they can say these words that Paul wrote 2,000 years ago in Philippians 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as trash. Everything He's saying that I valued as trash compared to knowing Jesus in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that I've earned that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the powers of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it, not that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, one thing I do, I forget what lies behind and I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus Hell shook to its foundations when Paul the Apostle, captured by the beauty of God, captured by the Gospel, captured by his belovedness of the Father when he wrote those words. And a church today, an individual today, a family today, a church today that gets captured by this, all of this stuff is nothing compared to knowing Jesus. One thing I'm going to do, I'm going to forget my victories, I'm going to forget my failures, and I'm going to press on. I'm going to press on. To the upward call of God in Christ Jesus when that is the fact that that defines your life. Hell is afraid. That's why hell is working. So why don't we see, why don't we see a bunch of demon possessions and why don't we see a bunch of that? Why would the, why would the enemy even put in the energy to do that? He's got us comfortable. He's, he's got us where we're not even awake. Why would he want to wake us up? You want to scare hell? Be careful in how I said that. You want to scare hell? You want to terrify the devil? Let your foundation be that you are beloved. Let your destination be. You're going to honor God no matter what. Say with Paul, My life and everything I counted value is nothing compared to knowing Jesus. And I hadn't gotten there yet, but I'm going to press on. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. So where are you? Where are you coming from? And where are you going?